0: 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, and he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is is the man, and the head of Christ is God. The church in Corinth that was founded by the Apostle Paul and is now being written to uh, by Paul himself was full of problems, as you are aware by now if you've been following along with us uh, through this study. Uh, It's just been one thing after the next. Since the beginning of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul hit them with the divisions that were uh, so prevalent and so tearing that church apart. And then he went, moved right into uh, the problem with their immaturity and that they were uh, focusing so much on minor things that they were failing to grow in their walk and in their faith before the Lord. And then from there he addressed the sexual sin that was rampant among them and that was intruding into the church and that was causing an ineffectiveness in their witness and a grieving of the Holy Spirit. And then he moved into the blending uh, uh, with the culture that was taking place there and how uh, they were exercising liberty in a way that was compromising the message and stumbling even uh, Christians amongst themselves. And so, you know, at this time, it's almost like, my goodness, Paul, have you got anything good to say uh, to us in all of this? But in spite of the fact that they had all of the problems that they had, They were actually one of the most healthy churches uh, that existed in New Testament times. You say, well, how is it possible that a church with so many problems could actually be one of the most healthy of the churches that existed in that day? And the reason is this. It's not because they they didn't have problems. and An absence of problems is never what determines a level of spiritual health. But what we do with our problems as Christians Or what a church does with its problems, that is what determines the level of spiritual health. And so the problems they had were actually to their benefit because of the way that they handled them. See, there's two ways that a Christian or a church can handle problems that they have. They can, first of all, bury them. They can say, well, I'm a Christian and everything in my life is supposed to be right. And so I'm just going to hide these things that are going on right now and put on the Jesus face and the Jesus speech and I'm going to put off like everything is just okay and I'll go on my life and hope that these things just kind of iron themselves out and resolve on their own. The problem with that is that what it tends towards is hypocrisy because I'm pretending to be something I'm not and bondage because the problem isn't gone. I'm just pretending that it is. So I'm still stuck in the issue that I have And nobody knows it, and I don't know what to do with it, and there's nothing I can do to set myself free. And so I'm a hypocrite, and I'm bound if I bury my problem. However, if I address my problem, which is what the Corinthians did, they wrote to Paul, asking him these questions, and saying, we've got issues, help us. And because they were willing to, as it were, expose the withered hand, or the crippled leg, or the leprosy that existed, that was a shame to them, perhaps, but that they knew they needed to get over the hurdle of it. They brought those things to Paul and they said, what do we do with this? And in the humility of exposing what the issue was and getting the help that they needed, Paul was able to address it by the word of God and through the spirit of God. And thus they were able to overcome these issues that they had, which then ended in spiritual health, number one, because they no longer had the problem. But then number two, they were able to then take the solution that had been given to them and impart it to others that had need. And so that's what it is always with us. It isn't the absence of problems that determines the level of our spiritual health. It's what we do with them. If we bury them, we do no good for anybody, ourselves or anybody else. But if we say, God, help me, I have these issues and we humble ourselves before him when we allow his spirit and his word to bring us through the things, then we experience freedom and we have the ability to help others in the way that we ourselves have been helped. And so they were a healthy church in spite of the fact that they had issues and problems. So submission to God's ways always results in healing and in change. And that's what was taking place in the Corinthians even as they were reading the words of Paul. And I hope that's what's happening in us as well, that as we read the words of Paul and the words of God by his spirit, that the issues that we have also are being addressed and changed by the power of God as he conforms us into his image. Now, as we come to chapter 11, Paul begins to talk to them about an issue that rubs against the grain of human nature, fallen human nature that is, and certainly against any modern culture as Corinth was modern for its day and it rubs against the grain in the culture of our day. And certainly the things that we read in here have the potential and the opportunity to offend because of the way that they can sound or the way that they can be spun by some that would say that the Bible is chauvinistic or that Paul was chauvinistic, or that God is chauvinistic, if we don't know the heart of God, then we can hear things that way. There's one person that's here tonight that I do not wish to offend in the teaching of this word. And that person is the Holy Spirit of God. Anybody else, that's not my problem. <laughs> but here's, here's what I know. And I say that just to, 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 to make it um, lighthearted a little bit. But here's what I do know. I know that God's ways are always right and that his wisdom always resonates with the Holy Spirit that's in us. And so if you're a Christian here tonight and you hear these things, don't allow Satan to twist it and to say, well, it means something else. Allow the Holy Spirit to give the meaning of these things and let it bring freedom and the peace that it's intended to bring and that it does bring. And so may God give us clarity uh, and wisdom in the hearing of his word. It takes humility and it takes openness uh, to receive some of the things that, that we hear in the Bible. And tonight, certainly we need those things. So Paul begins now to address certain traditions. Notice how he begins the chapter there in the first two verses. He, he says at the beginning, he says, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now where he left off at the end of the last chapter, if you just want to glance up one verse in your Bible, verse 33 of the last chapter, Paul said this, he said, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. That's the conclusion of three chapters of teaching concerning the way that we conduct ourselves within the world. Paul says it's important that we look out for others ahead of ourselves. And then he begins chapter 11 without a break in thought by saying this, saying, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. In other words, if my mentality, Paul would say, is that I'm looking out for others ahead of myself then let that be your mentality as well. And if we can grasp that right at the onset of this chapter, then we've already cleared the hurdle of the challenge that it carries. Because if we can grasp that the reason I exist within the world is not to please myself, but rather to serve God's purposes and God's purposes for others ahead of me, Well, then it makes what Paul's about to say very unoffensive because it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. I have no rights in the gospel and in Christ. And so Paul then gives them a praise in verse two. Notice, he says, now I praise you, brethren. And by the way, this chapter, which we'll only get through half of it tonight, consists of basically two things. Number one is a praise where he says here, I praise you, brethren. But then in verse 17, he says, I praise you not. So there's a rebuke. There's a praise and a rebuke. The praise is this. He says, I praise you, brothers, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances or the traditions or the customs, any of those words fit there, as I delivered them to you. So Paul is saying, listen, it is a commendable thing in my absence that you guys ask yourselves the questions, What did Paul say about this? How did Paul handle this? How did Paul address this? What did Paul ask us to do in navigating the situation? Paul says, that's a good thing that you did. In following me as I follow Christ, you're not spinning off into self-will, but you're seeking to govern yourselves based upon the example that was laid out before you. He says, I praise you in that. It's a good thing that you remember me and that you keep the ordinances. Now, one of the ordinances that Paul had given to them concerned the role and the place of women within the church as a witness for the Lord in the gospel in the city of Corinth. And apparently, one of the customs that he had laid upon the church in Corinth, by the way, that he did not lay upon all of the churches, but he felt the need to in Corinth, as we'll see, was that the women wear the traditional veil or head covering, uh, which was essentially a symbol that they were either under their father's care or that they were married to a husband. And so that was something that Paul laid upon that church. It was a custom. It was something that he said, this is important that you do. And they did it. He says, you remember me in this and I praise you for it. But apparently they asked Paul in the letter that they wrote to him why it was that they had to observe that custom. For some, perhaps it seemed inconsistent with the ways of God and the liberty of the gospel. Why is it that you're asking of the women that they wear these head coverings and what is the significance of it and what does it mean? That's the question that they ask. And so Paul now takes the time to address it and to answer the question for us uh, in, in, in the successive verses. And he answers it beginning in verse 3 by talking to them about God's order. Notice again what he says. He says, but I would have you know, and this is the beginning of his answer, that the head of every man is Christ. That is the governing authority over every man is Christ and that the head of the woman is the man. Now in that right there, we come to the first thing that can be a potential stumbling block (laughs) to us as we consider what in the world does that mean but the interesting thing about it as he says that the head of man is christ and then the head of the woman is the man is that we understand the first part that's easy but the second part gets complicated here's why because what it essentially means is that every man has one head or governing authority but every woman has two which automatically gets confusing because the woman has to follow Christ herself. God doesn't speak to the man as though he's the priest and mediator for his wife's relationship with himself. Every woman that's saved still has a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. She still has the Holy Spirit living within her and speaking to her and leading her life according to his will and his purposes for her. And so he is her head essentially singularly But then secondarily, every woman is called to be under the authority also of her husband. And so she has that second uh, thing that she needs as well. And then he finishes it by saying that the head of Christ is God. And so essentially, the way Paul answers this question right off the bat is by saying to us that God is a God of order. And that's nothing new to us. We should understand that. That should be something that we understand on the very first day that we're born again and our eyes are open to Him. When we look around at creation, we understand that everything that was made was made with intricacy and with perfect order. When you look at the cosmos and the way that the space and the heavens function, the aligning and the movement of planets and stars and galaxies and solar systems and all the rest, As we look at those things, we recognize that there is an order in those things that is so precise. When you look at just things inside the earth and you begin to pick things apart biologically or to examine the systems that God has created scientifically, we recognize very quickly that God is a God of order. He's left nothing to chance, nothing to randomness, but everything is very calculated and very intentional in the realms of God. Now, that's true in creation and in created things, but it's also true in the realms of heavenly and earthly governance and heavenly and earthly authorities, that God is absolutely a God of order. And the order that God has laid out in terms of authority and submission is that God the Father is over all, and that Christ the Son is under his authority or leadership even though they are three in one father son and spirit and it's a mystery we don't understand but yet within that godhead there is role and function there is authority and submission and we see that the son jesus in his example in his earthly ministry operated in perfect submission to his father he said i do always only those things that please the father i am come forth to do his will and accomplish his objectives and his tasks his purposes we see jesus in constant communion and fellowship with his father we see him breaking plans that would obviously have gone forward saying no i cannot go into that village because i must needs intentional specific direction i must needs go and preach in other villages also going through samaria it says that he must needs go through samaria even though that wasn't the best way to go and it certainly wasn't the acceptable way to go but there was a woman there that the father needed the son to reach for his purposes and so we see the son operating in submission to the father in the garden what did he say father not my will but your will be done now i want you to understand this that it is not This concept of submission and authority, a question of ability, a question of prominence or importance, or a question of favorability, it is purely an issue of order that exists within the creation of the realms of God. To say that a woman is less than a man because she is to be in submission to her, that is her husband, would be equivalent of saying that Christ is less than the father. And that would be blasphemous because Jesus said, I and the father are one. It is not an issue of intelligence or ability or anything else. It is simply an issue of order in the realms of angelic and terrestrial or uh, men in those things. And so Paul says that the reason for this, it touches this issue of God's order of authority and submission. And then he begins to expand on it in verse four uh, by saying this. he says that every man praying or prophesying having his head covered and that head covering that he speaks of there is not a hat necessarily but it's the traditional veil or the symbol of uh, marriage or, or of submission it's very similar um, in our society today to a, a, a person that wears a wedding ring or a woman who takes her husband's name in a vow. It's a symbol uh, that she is linked to him, that that he is, in a sense, her covering. It's a symbol. And he says that any man who has his head covered, he dishonors his head. And the reason why why that that is is because of what that head covering essentially represents. When you look at it in the Bible and and you take the veil as it relates to man's relationship with God, under the new covenant, we operate without avail. In 2 Corinthians chapter four, which we will um, come to because when we finish 1 Corinthians, we'll roll right into second. Um, the apostle Paul is going to lay out a contrast between the law, the old covenant, and grace in the new covenant. And when he talks about that, he's gonna say that we are not under that old covenant. And, and what he does is he reaches back and he pulls this example from the life of Moses. And he says that we are, we are open-faced. There's no veil. The veil in the temple was torn open when Jesus you know, um, rose from the grave. There's no longer a separation between man and God. That The two are face-to-face because the blood of Christ has atoned and made us one. And he says in the Old Testament, Moses wore a veil over his face when he would come down the mountain. And, and the story was that when Moses went up, his face would glow because the glory of God was shining upon it. And when he would come down the mountain, the, the, the glow was so bright that the children of Israel couldn't comprehend it. They were, they were stumbled by it. The glow was too much and they couldn't look into his face. It was too bright. And so he put a veil over his face to hide the glow so as that he would be in their presence and not burn their eyeballs out, essentially. But when Paul talks about that veil in second Corinthians chapter four, he tells us that there was a second reason why Moses wore that veil. It wasn't just because of the blinding light that was killing the children of Israel as they looked at it, but it says that he also wore the veil so that, and listen, this is important, so that the children of Israel wouldn't see that the glory was fading in other words, the glow was not constant. He would go up the mountain, be charged up, he would come down, and the batteries would slowly wear out. And the glow would stop. And so Moses, wanting to look the leader, wore the veil so that the people would think, wow, that glory is really intense, even though the glory was fading. Then Moses would go, oh no, the glory's gone. And he would go back up the mountain. Recharge the batteries come down again and they'd see the beams coming out from the sides and the whole thing Paul says this He says that in this new covenant. We do not wear veils We are not Going up getting filled up then coming down and being deflated. We are constantly Open-faced beholding the lord and his glow his glory is constantly reflecting off of our lives And for us as New Testament Christians to be wearing veils, hiding things and not being constantly and consistently in the presence of the Lord, but being on again, off again, in and out, hot and cold, up and down like a roller coaster, is to be missing the glory of the new covenant. And so for us to be veiled in the spiritual sense is to dishonor our head because we're putting off the glory of what the new covenant represents and is and so paul says for a man to wear the, sim- the the veil which symbolizes something for him would be a dishonor because it misrepresents the glory that we have been given however notice what he says in verse five he says but every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head and that would be her husband for it for that is even all one as if she were shaven or had her her head shaved. Now you say, wait a minute. Does this mean that the woman has a different relationship with God than the man? No. Every one of us in this new covenant walk with Christ are unveiled before God. The glory of God is upon us and it reflects from us. But the reason why Paul says that the woman wears the head covering is also because of what the head covering represented in that day in the city of Corinth there were amongst the citizens there a colony a city of Rome thousands of prostitutes that were associated and linked with the multiplicity of pagan temples that existed there within the city and the identifying mark of the harlots in that day is that they would either have shaved heads or they would parade themselves around without any type of a head covering. It was traditional, even in the Roman custom, that a woman who was either a virgin or married would wear some symbol of of authority upon her head. If it was a virgin, it would be the fact that she's under her father's care, and it would be symbolic, and it would be a message conveyed to the citizens of that city that that woman is pure. Either she's a virgin under her father's care or she's married to a husband, but she's not linked with and associated with the paganism of the day. And so that head covering represented and was symbolic of her purity or the fact that she was covered, a beautiful covering that God gave, that God gives to the women. So for her to not have that covering would be to be saying, well, I am allowing myself to be identified with the carnality and the sinfulness that goes on within the city. And that would bring a blight and shame upon the gospel and upon the church and upon the place that God has given the woman within it. Not that she's less than the man before God or has less of God in the world. None of that is true, but it is simply what it represented in that society in that day. Now, Paul did not lay this upon every Christian, nor did he make this a custom in every church. We're gonna see that when we get down to verse 16. He's gonna say, listen, we do not carry this custom. And so it isn't about hats and veils and symbols of authority. It's about the spiritual representation of the purity that it represents. So for a man to wear the veil symbolically dishonors the new covenant, but for a woman to not wear the veil dishonors the husband because she is associated by unbelievers in that culture in that day with either a prostitute or the equivalent of the man haters of the day that said well we just do not want to be associated with that in, in the whole thing and we don't care about God's order in the whole thing and so it was a cultural sign within uh corinth in that day like a wedding ring or like taking a man's last name uh, in the day that we live in today now paul's going to give four reasons why he laid this upon this custom which he calls it a custom this ordinance why he did it four reasons that he gives in in the in the following verse verses notice in verse six he says for if the woman be not covered let her also be shorn or let her head be shaved But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, then let her also be covered. The first reason uh, that Paul gives for the the, the ordinance of a head covering in the city of Corinth is because uh, of the shame that it would bring upon the church and the reputation of the gospel if she were not to wear that covering. For a woman in that day who was called a Christian to not wear the covering would be looked upon by the outside society as a prostitute, as a harlot, as one that was disrespectful to the customs of Corinth and also to the customs of God. And Paul says that this is bigger than you, it's bigger than you are. And so wear it, because it's a shame and it would be the equivalent you not wearing it as if your head was shorn and if you just wore the t-shirt that said i'm a prostitute and you just hung out in those places and did those things because that's the image that it's going to paint and and it doesn't serve the purposes uh, of christ within the church now mind you this is all for corinth this does not apply in our society that's not true if a woman doesn't wear a head covering they don't go look at that harlot we don't, this isn't the United States of America, this is Corinth. And so this is very specific to what was going on there, but where it links to us is that of course we don't want to do something that's going to bring shame upon the gospel. We don't want to live our lives in such a way where the world looks at us and they can equate us with harlots or with paganism and say, well, if that gospel is doing that for you, then what is it going to do for me? Paul says that was a risk in Corinth and thus it was imperative for him that the women wear it. He says, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. We'll come back to that uh, concept in just a few minutes. The second reason that he gives is in verse eight. He says, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. So what Paul does here is he reaches way back to the very beginning of the creation when God made male and female. And he says that very simply that God made the man first and then he made the woman from the man and then he made the woman for the man. And so how does the head covering relate uh, to this in terms of the reason why he would ask a woman to wear it? Because it was a symbol and is a symbol of God's order an established authority order in the realms uh, of creation. Order is important to God. And as we already looked at, it was observed by Jesus himself. And so, uh, um, you know, Paul says, it's important that that order be maintained for the sake of God's uh, um, design and what he designed. The third reason that he gives is in verse 10. And this should clear everything up for everybody. I know it does for me. He says, for this cause, ought the woman have power on her head or it literally it's the husband's authority the symbol because of the angels got it let's move on (laughs) I I mean I almost found myself reading that text and looking you know how like sometimes on the computer you'll see something and there'll be like a little plus sign next to it and you can click on the plus sign and it opens up this whole like Wikipedia article under it and you can like I need more on that I was looking for the plus sign (laughs) Paul, Paul help me here Uh, because of this whole thing. I don't know exactly what in the world Paul um, was getting at, which of course opens the door for every um, insane person to speculate on, uh, (laughs) on what they think this means. But what it probably is, is that in the realms of the angelic, which are the realms that we cannot see, though they exist. We see that very clearly in Scripture. Many of us that walk with the Lord, we see the intervention of those things that we don't see necessarily a physical uh apparition of things we see the 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 intervening of of the heavenly realms in our world from time to time i know if you have kids you see this remember one time uh rocky was standing right on the edge of the couch when he was just probably like two years old uh and his back was facing the concrete floor and he was starting to lean backwards and we were on the other side of the room and we just had that like oh we are about to go to the emergency room look on our face as he began and we both watched georgia and i and we saw that he was at like You know, a certain angle on his way back, and and without anything, he just went. You know, from his ankles, that was like the pivot point. There was no like bending. He just went, and we looked at each other, and we were like, "Angel." (laughs) You know, and and you know that there are times that that we you see it as a child of God, because the Bible says that they are ministering spirits, and they're sent to minister or serve on behalf of the heirs of salvation. And so there are angels. And the Bible teaches that any time that there is a meeting going on like this one, where the word of God is being taught and the things of God are being done, that there are angels here that are administering. And, and, And so we recognize that that's a reality, that that's something that happens. Now, in the angelic realm, order is extremely important and it is very closely adhered to. They understand the importance of that. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah catches a glimpse of the scene in God's throne room. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he says that his train or his robe filled the temple. And it was filled with the Shekinah glory of the smoke of God that was ascending. And there, there were angels in the room, seraphim. And it says that each of them had six wings. And that with two of them, they covered their faces. With two of them, they covered their bodies. And with only two of them, they did fly. And they would shout back to one another and they would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the pillars in the temple would shake at the sound of their voices. And Isaiah describes the scene that's constantly taking place before the throne of God and and the angels that are there. But the thing that is the most striking about that scene is is that the angels spend more of their energy in hiding themselves than they do in actually fulfilling their purpose. What's the purpose of a wing? It's to fly. If you have six wings, that's cool. (laughs) But they used four, two-thirds of their capacity to hide themselves so as not to distract from the glory and the beauty of him that sat upon the throne. And the angels are well aware of God's prominence, God's power and his glory, and they do not break rank in what they do, even though they have the ability to probably do more than what it is that they've been commissioned to do. They recognize the order. And so what Paul could be saying in this verse, and probably he is, is that when an angel looks upon a body that represents God and that God is seeking to move through, And they see that there's a neglect for the respect of God's order, that it stumbles them. That it brings confusion into the realms of spiritual things. And certainly we need clarity in the realms of spiritual things. And so what Paul is asking of the Christians is that we would observe the order that God has established for his purposes that his purposes might not be confused because of self-will or a a, a disregard for his ways that might be in us. And so the reason that Paul gives here concerns the harmony that there needs to be in relationship between heaven and earth. He says it, it does something in the angelic realm that maybe probably we can't understand it and that's why he doesn't elaborate on it, but he says that it's very real and he says this is important. And then he gives the fourth reason in verses 11 and 12. He says, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Now, if you want to, right next to that verse, you could just write the word equality because that's what he's saying right there. He's saying that in the Lord, there is a very stark difference between the gender differences uh, uh, between a man and a in a woman, is that in the eyes of God, there is absolute equality. That God looks at a man, and God looks at a woman, and he looks at them with the same level of love. He looks at them with the same level of respect. He looks at them with the same desire to redeem and to save. There is not one of those two, the man and the woman, that's more important than the other one uh, that, that God will deal with. There is not a one that's a second-class one. That if, if you are saved here tonight, then there, God is not a respecter of persons, and he certainly does not draw lines concerning gender as it relates to his favor he does draw lines concerning gender but not as it relates to his favor there is equality of value listen but there is a difference of role he says for as the woman is of the man even so is the man also by the woman but all things of God. In other words, if you want to begin to think that because you're a man, that in some way you're over a woman, then you need to look back to the very first day of your life and look where you came from. <laughs> because if it wasn't for her, that woman that bore you, you wouldn't be here. And so don't get puffed up and don't get lifted up uh, in this thing. That there is equality uh, in the value, but there is difference in the role. I wrote in my notes here that the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. And there is absolute truth within that statement is that I don't care how powerful or how authoritative or how gifted or how used of God a man is, if it isn't for the woman, that man is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Reminds me, um, one time there was a college professor and he gave to every student in his classroom a piece of paper with a sentence on it. And that sentence said, Woman, and it just said these words, no, no punctuation marks at all. It said, woman without her man is nothing. That was, those were the words on the page. And the professor looked at his students and he said, there are two commas in that sentence, fill them in. And without fail, every man in that room put the commas in the sentence to make it say this, woman without her man, comma, is nothing. Woman, comma, without her man, comma, is nothing. But every woman in the room, without fail, put the commas like this. Woman, comma, without her, comma, man is nothing. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's funny, isn't it? But with God, there is absolutely a separation of gender, but not in terms of value in the way that God looks upon a life, but absolutely as it relates to, authority structure, and of course, role. And so as he moves on into verse 13, he's gonna get into the reason for gender separation and that is important. He says this, he says, Judge in yourselves, he says, is it comely or right for a woman to pray to God uncovered? Now, in our society, we look at that and say, yeah, that, there's no problem there if a woman prays without a hat on. But in that society, it wasn't. It was so clear that Paul could say that that way and not expect that there needed to be any explanation at all. It is not right, Paul said, and you know it. And they would say, yep, right, Paul, you're right. We know it. He says, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a shame unto him? Now, this is, this is a tough verse, isn't it? <laughs> because what's long hair, right? I mean, George Washington had long hair, didn't he? <laughs> you know, there's uh, How long is long? Where do you draw the line in all this? He says, but, he says, if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, ignore the semantics for just a minute, because we are in a completely different cultural setting than was the Apostle Paul. And he is going to say in the next verse that these customs are not customs that are applied in a generic sense. And so he's not saying the application of this Bible study is women grow your hair and put a hat on, and men cut your hair. (laughs) That's not the application of the study. It's a spiritual principle that's at stake. So, what's the spiritual principle that we draw from this? Here's what it is. Listen. If you go away with nothing else tonight, go away with this. Gender matters to God, it's important. Gender is not irrelevant. Man is not man, whether he be male or female. God created them, male and female. And he made a distinction between the two on purpose, and it is important to him that men are men and women are women. And what's the reason for that? Here's the reason. Because that's the way that God ordered society and family and personal development to work that there be a separation between the genders and it's important for the succession of life and society on planet earth. I want to give to you um, in closing, we're not going to go any further than than this half of the chapter tonight. What I want to give to you is essentially in closing here, five uh, brief reasons why gender is important to God, why it's important for a man to be a man and for a woman to be a woman because we we live in a society right now that is seeking to erase and blur the lines of gender, aren't we? I mean, we have gender neutral bathrooms where if you just feel like you're a woman today, that you better than you use the ladies room. And if you feel like you're a man today, regardless of what you are, what it says on your birth certificate or what your anatomy uh, represents, you just use whatever bathroom you want. If you want us to call you Mrs., even though you're a Mr., then you have the right to be called that or vice versa. Or if you want to dress and you want to wear clothing that is clearly designed for a woman and her shape, then then you're free to do that. You don't have to to, to observe those lines. We're just going to make a a gender-neutral world. and That's the way the world is seeking to go. God doesn't want things done that way. He made gender, and he made it the way he made it on purpose. He designed the differences that exist between men and women and the roles that he designed for men and women. He did those things. When man fell in Genesis chapter three, God said when he was explaining the effects of the curse to both the man and the woman, he said this. He said to Adam in Genesis chapter three, verse 16, he said, cursed is the ground for your sake. He said, it's going to bring forth uh, thorns and, and um, you know uh, different curse. I should just turn there, right? not there on the screen in my mind at the moment he says this he unto the woman it starts with actually in verse 16 he said i will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in sorrow you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you paul says listen i'm sorry god says to uh eve in the garden when she fell she's saying listen that part of this curse is that not only is there going to be a a multiplied sorrow in your conception and in your labor, but listen, he says that your desire is going to be toward your husband. And the idea there is that you're going to want to be him. But, and here's the contrast, it says that he will rule over you. In other words, he's the one that's going to have the the trump card in in the relationship. That's going to be the curse as it affects the woman. But notice now what he says to the man in verse 17. He says, but unto Adam, he said, because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to you and you shall eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of thy face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken for dust. You are and unto dust. You shall return. But here's the point why I read that verse uh, as it relates to this, the separation of the two genders. Is that what, what God said is that a result of the curse, and it affects every one of us, is that you're going to have a tendency to kick against the God given role that He has ordained for you, whether you're a male or you're a female. If you're a male, Your role is that you are the provider. You're the one that by the sweat of your brow, you're gonna cause the earth to bring forth and you're gonna provide. You're gonna have calloused hands. You're gonna sweat with your brow. You're gonna fight to eke out a living in this world and it's not gonna be easy. And you're not gonna like it and you're gonna wanna kick against it. And so what do we see when we look at fallen man? We see that he's the one with the burden of provision, but he kicks against it and that he wants to just be lazy and do nothing that he wants to earn as much as he can with the least amount of labor possible and pad his existence in this world. He kicks against it. On the contrary, what did God say to the woman? He says, you, your place is conception and delivery. You're going to be the nurturer, the one that raises children, the one that takes care of the home. But because you're fallen, your desire is gonna be toward your husband. You're gonna wanna do what he does And there's going to be a desire to break away from the role that God has designed from you. And all of that is a result of the fall. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because Satan's right there to say, you don't have it as good as the other. What does he say to the men? Don't you wish you could stay home all day and be with the kids? Doesn't that look easy for you? If only she knew what it was like to go out here and do what you do. She doesn't appreciate you. And what does he say to the woman? Wow, you're a second-class citizen. You're called to be at home. You're living a totally unsatisfying and unproductive life, sitting at home, taking care of kids, ministering to your husband, teaching the younger ones. What kind of unsatisfying existence is that? And Satan plays upon our fallen nature, and he knows how to work those dials. But God, in his wisdom, ordains the roles as they are. Did you catch it when I read it in Genesis 3.16? Did you hear what God said? He said, cursed is the ground for your sake. Did you see that? That there's a blessing in it. God's in it. He did it for man. And the roles that God has ordained, he's ordained not only for the succession of society, but he's done it for our well-being and our good as well. In order for a human being to become productive and fruitful, They need a mother and a father in their respective roles, raising them the way that God ordained that they would raise them. That's reason number one, is that a child, whether it's a male child or a female child, needs a mother and a father operating in their God-given roles. It is true that daughters, when they are being brought up, learn what acceptable and right manhood is And they gravitate toward men that are like their fathers. Don't they say that women marry their fathers? And so it's essential that a young woman have a man in her life that knows what a man is and knows how to be a man so that his daughter, when she comes of age, knows what that looks like and when she chooses a maid for herself, chooses one that will be able to take care of her the way that she needs to be cared for. A son needs a father within his life. He needs a father that knows what a man is and knows how to be a man and knows how to be a father. And the reason is because sons come to an age when they seek because it's in them to seek it. And they need because it's in them to need it the approval of their fathers and of the other men in their world. And they will lean upon the example that they see as a pattern for obtaining that approval. And so if a son doesn't have a father in his life that knows what it looks like to be a man and to act like a man and to have the strength of a man, then he's not going to know that that's what's required and and, and needed in him in order for him to gain the approval of men in his world and in his society. And so a son needs a father that knows what it is to be a father, but he also needs a mother. Because he goes through those nurturing years and needs to know what it's like to be cared for and needs to know what it is to be loved and he needs to know what a woman is supposed to be so that when he chooses a woman, he knows how to choose a woman. He needs a father and a mother within his life. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I don't have time to read it to you, but I would suggest perhaps that you do. Paul talks about God the Father and the way that he deals with us. And he says that just like a mother cherishes her children, so that example of God's nurturement we gave to you. And then Paul goes on in the verses that follow to say that even as a father charges his children and encourages them and builds them up, he says, so we have done for you in the name of God. God treats us with nurture and he treats treats us with toughness because we need both. And every human being needs both the tenderness of a mother and the strength of a father within their life. One psychologist said that a mother's job is typically done during the first 10 years of a child's life, and then with the father in the background, and then the father's job, he takes the forefront during the second 10 years with the mothers in the background, but at the same time, they're always working in tandem, raising the life of that child. I heard the story recently of a seventh grade teacher who on the orientation day when the students came in and met with the, uh, along with the parents, the, uh, um, the, the, the teacher looked at the parents and said, Mom, your child is now in the seventh grade. Good job. Now go home and rest. Dads, now it's your turn. And that was good. You know, she recognized the need for the father to take up his role as a father within the life of that I believe also on this note, and this is important for you dads, I believe that it is our responsibility as fathers that we be the primary Bible teachers in the lives of our kids. That they be learning spiritual truth and spiritual principles from us. Because ultimately they are gonna gravitate towards our ways. And though our wives, they do that and they do it well and they need to and they should. At the end of the day, if it isn't backed up by our example as the head of our households, then that effort is halved at best. And so it's important that we as dads be the primary Bible teachers for our kids. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Learn how. We have no excuse in this day and age to not know the Bible well enough to be able to teach it to our kids on some level. And God honors it when we do. The second reason why gender is so important to God uh, and, and, and that we need to look at is, is to understand that the gospel has liberated and elevated women beyond anything else that has ever existed within the world. I guess that's more of an observation than uh, than a reason, but it's important that we understand it, because if you look at um, you know history and you look at the way women have been treated throughout history, I mean they they've been treated as property. They're they are second class citizens. But what God has made. he's made equality and he's made uh, liberty amongst uh, the women. I have more to say about that, but I want to move on. Um, I I will say this, is that the women's liberation movement has done more damage to women than it has good by a long stretch within the world that we live in. Because the freedom that it has promised has actually brought great harm to them because women weren't created to be what that image uh, typifies and makes them and it destroys something within the woman. But the freedom that God gives to women glorifies and beautifies the role of a woman, and in embracing it, she finds that she is set free. I have found in my own life, and I'm not a woman. I know know that some of you are shocked by it, no. But I have found in my life that everything that I love today I was brought to the place where I am kicking and screaming. Just this morning, uh, I was sitting at the breakfast table and the five kids were there and Georgia was there and we were all sitting together. I leaned back in the chair and I looked at each one of their faces. Sarah sits to my immediate left and then next to her is Noah, who is the firework of the family. And then next to him is Riley, who sits down on that end. And then down at the other end of the table, nine feet away, is Rocky, my oldest son. And then next to him... Uh, sits Hosanna, uh, my oldest, and then next to her is Georgia, and then I sit at the head of the table. And as I sat there and I just looked at each one of their faces, I just thought to myself, this is the greatest thing I could ever imagine is to be right here, right now, to be who I am just in my role as a father, nothing else, and just looking into the faces of these souls that I have the privilege to raise. But do you know that God smirks when he sees that smile on my face? And here's why. Because he brought me to that place kicking and screaming the whole way. I'm just, no veil, you know, tonight. Every single time Georgia was pregnant, I was like, "Uh, uh, No! You know, kicking and screaming. But I look at it from where I am now and I say, God, thank you that you knew me better than I knew myself. And I can say that about so many things in my life as I look back over the years. God has brought me so many places that I am so blessed today, but I went kicking and screaming. And God will do that. He will bring us down a path that we do not wanna go down, but he will bring us down it because he knows that we're gonna like the view when we get to the end of it. And that is absolutely true when it concerns a woman in the place that God has given her in his creation and in his function. Sometimes you can kick against it and you can say, I hate the stigma that's attached to that or the fact that there would be any gender separation that bothers me. But let me tell you this, is that if you, in the spirit of God, would look at him and say, God, make me what you made me to be as a woman, I can tell you this, that you will come to a place where you will say, that is absolutely perfect. This is exactly what you made me for. It is beautiful, it's holy, and it's good thank you father that's what he does number three role separation is not in any way role restriction when you look at what jesus did upon the earth he was in subordination to the father wasn't he but you see the things that he did he was unlimited in what his capacity was and what he was able to do you look at man and his submission to christ christ is the head of man right And we are unlimited in what we are given to do. He said, greater works than these will you do because I go to my father. So the fact that he is our head, Jesus, as men, doesn't restrict us from doing certain things, but we do it under his covering. And the same thing is true for a woman. Her role as a woman doesn't make her unable to do different things. She's not restricted because of the role that she's in. She has a covering in that role. When you read Proverbs 31 and you see what that woman does, the virtuous woman, there's absolutely no restriction at all there in the things that she does. She has an incredible latitude of things that she's able to do. She doesn't just sit at home and do nothing, but eat bonbons and watch soap operas all day waiting for her husband to come home. That's not what she does. There's no restriction in what she does. It's a place of submission and authority. And understand this, every person here, not just women or men, every one of us, listen, authority and submission are inseparable if you are not in submission you have no authority that is always always true for every single person and so it's not restriction it's separation of the roles, which is important. Number four, and this one's to the men. And we go back to verse seven in this one. You can just go there in your eyes or you can just hear what I'm about to, to say. But it says at the end of verse seven, it says that the woman is the glory of the man. And the idea there is that she is the reflection, that the, the, that the, uh, the idea of the glory, she's the reflection of the man. And so now uh, women, you're probably feeling maybe a little bit beat up. Let me talk to the men for just a moment, and then we're going to close the service out and uh, thank God that we're through this passage. <laughs> there are there are many men that complain about their wives, and they'll complain about their wives on several different levels uh, and for several different reasons. But let me just submit to you that perhaps the thing about your wife that you don't like is your fault if you want your wife to be something that she's not, look in the mirror and ask yourself if you are before God and before her the thing that you're asking her or hoping that she will be. Because the woman is the reflection of the glory of the man. And if she is not becoming more Christ-like and more beautiful and more graceful as she ages, then that might be your fault, man. I speak to myself in this. What we're called to do in that, men, is that we're to keep our eyes on our head on Jesus Christ and that we're to be to him everything that we would hope our wives would be to us. And the automatic result of that is that they will because if we're being conformed into the image of Christ, then our wives will be as well because they are a reflection of us. So men, wear your complaints upon yourself because it's your fault. It's my fault if there's something wrong with our wives and then finally <laughs> can't wait to be finished with this message <laughs> it's not the custom and that's in verse 16 and we'll read verse 16 as we close and the musicians can come he says but if any man seem to be contentious he says we have no such custom neither the churches of God you see Paul couldn't we just Cut this half a chapter out. If if we're not going to wear head coverings and all the rest. No, listen. Here's the point. Here's where we conclude. Is that the whole concept of everything that we talked about tonight. It has nothing to do with whether or not a woman should wear a hat or a veil or a covering in church or when she prays. It has everything to do with what that covering symbolizes. Both for the man and for the woman. And here's the message tonight that you have waited almost an entire hour now to hear uh, through the veil of all of this teaching. Here's what the spirit of God has for us tonight. Are you ready for it? Listen, God says this to you, thus saith God, men be men. Figure out what the Bible says a man is and what God created a man to be as a member of society, as a worker, as one who knows what it means to get things done, as a leader of your home, as a warrior, as one that knows how to fight for what he loves and protect what he loves, men be men and raise your children as men. And women be women. Look at what the Bible says that God made women to be and what he made them for and embrace that role. Don't kick against it. Don't deny it. Don't think that it's less. Don't think that you're devalued in God's eyes, but embrace the role that God has made for you and find yourself in it and you will find yourself in it. It is a beautiful role in a beautiful place to be and it is an incredible protection that God has afforded you to have a head over you in the form of a husband or a father. So important. If you're single here tonight and you're a single woman and you say, well, I don't have a husband, then what does that look like for me? It's even better for you. And here's why. Because by default, automatically Christ is your head. The head of every man is Christ. And that is male and female in that context. What does it say in Isaiah? It says that your maker is your husband. And so lean upon him, but women be women. That's the message. Embrace the role that God has given to you. Moms, be moms. Don't kick against the role of being a mom. Don't hate it or despise it or diminish it or think that it's unimportant or not necessary. It is necessary. Your kids need you to be a mom, a biblical mom, what God made moms to be. Be a wife. If God's called you to be a wife, then embrace what it is to be a wife. Men, be fathers to your children. Be what it is that God has designed you to be as an example of what a man is and raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Don't cow to the society that says men be feminine. Don't do it. Be a man. Paul said to the Thessalonians, stand as men. Protect and love what is yours. Be fathers and be husbands. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. You will find yourself in embracing the role that God has given to you. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we look at this passage. And Lord, you, you are so wise in what you make and the way that you make what you make. So help us, Lord, to uh, hear the, the voice of the Holy Spirit as it applies to us in these things, that we might embrace, Lord, what you've made us to be. Help us, Lord, where those things have been blurred within our minds and let us find fulfillment that the cure for our dysfunction and the cure for our discontent may be found and being what you made us and who you made us to be. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.